in three, two, one. More than 50% of sales pros regularly fail to achieve their annual sales targets. Corporations have invested generously in training, but it doesn't seem to be effective. Despite spending millions of dollars, they have not been able to solve the pervasive problem of low sales quota achievement. There is no other profession where this pattern of low performance success is tolerated. Moreover, the pandemic has made B2B selling even more challenging. Sales is no longer a simple linear process. Today's sales professionals require new skills to deal with the profound changes in the digital marketplace. To help us understand our current environment and how we can exceed quotas is author of the just-released book, Above Quota Performance. Join me now for my conversation with Steve Weinberg. Well, hi, Steve. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm happy to be here. Now, where are we talking to you from today? I'm in the Chicago area, in the north suburbs of Chicago. Well, nice. Well, Steve, we're really delighted to have you and to talk about your book, Above Quota Performance. I have had a chance to read it, and there's lots of gems and insights in there, and we're going to get to them. Before we do, customer buying behaviors are constantly evolving, and the way organizations sell today has to evolve as well, and I know you believe that. What are some of the changes that you've seen, and particularly through the pandemic or because of the pandemic, how have you seen that evolution in selling and where companies should be going? Well, selling has been changing for the last few years for a number of reasons. Some of it has to do with the fact that a lot of the buying decisions are being made by millennials, and they're very different than (laughs) parents and their older brothers or whatever. But the pandemic really just took everything and just turned it upside down. Because in the past, let's say salespeople, even calling on medium companies or small companies, large companies, we would have access to the buyers and we would be able to meet with them in person talk to them, ask them a lot of questions, and then try to determine what their needs were and try to fit what we had to their needs. Now that's no longer possible. We can't meet with them in person. They're over-Zoomed. They Zoom, Zoom, Zoom all day long. So if you try to get them on a Zoom that's more than 15 or 20 minutes, they get very tired of it quickly and they tell you they can't speak anymore. So A lot of the buying decisions are being made now in the absence of a salesperson's influence. So today, the buyers are much farther along in the process before they talk to a salesperson than they used to. Again, in the 80s and 90s, salespeople would get in at the beginning of the process more and then work through from beginning to end. Now, salespeople get in in the middle of the process and then have less access from that point to the time it closes which makes it much more difficult for the salespeople because they're just not getting as much information. They're not getting access to the buying team, which also has changed. I'll get to that in a minute. And they have less access to the key decision maker, which is almost at this point today, it's almost never. So if you say, well, I want to speak with whoever is going to sign the check, they'll say, well, maybe you'll get to that at the time we decide who we're going with. So it's after the effect. And again, going back to the buyers in the 80s and 90s, typically what I found was that the buying team was really small. It was maybe two, three, four, exceptionally four or five people, but never more than five. Today, it's a lot of times it's eight, nine or 10 people. 
and it's consensus driven. So in the past, again, there could be one person with greater influence among the three or four, and that person would drive the decision. Today, that's not the case anymore. You'll normally see a cross-functional team. There'll sometimes be somebody from HR, from procurement, from legal, from IT, covering all aspects of the company. And then they get together like a jury and then decide your fate Right. in the same way a jury would. If it's not unanimous, you don't win. So it's, again, the way that the changes that have occurred before the pandemic happened were starting to be very, very severe. And as a result of the pandemic, they've become much more difficult for sales today than they were before. Yeah, you make a, a couple of really good interesting points there is, you know, in our early days, it was you deal with one or two or three buyers or a small team, it was easy to get in front of them. And we had information disparity, we had information asymmetry. We knew something they didn't, which is why they needed to meet with us. Now with a click of a button, they can go right to the internet, they can chop our competitors. Sometimes they know more than we do. So in my mind, and I'm in agreement with you, I think the game's changed. I think the game has to be always, we know something that you don't, this is why we need to meet. But you have to have something that they don't know or that's going to impact their business. And we can kind of get into that. And then building consensus, which makes it a longer sales cycle for sure. I have a question around that. You raised an interesting point and it made me think of something. In training the organizations over the last you know decade or so, we've seen within the genders, I've seen women do this really, really well. And when we first started selling, it was mostly men in the sales force. And now we're seeing organizations where women are doing extremely well and they're really outpacing the men. And I remember I had a chance to speak one time with Tom Peters at a conference. I was the opening guy. He was the main guy. And he said, hey, Mr. CEO, he goes, here's my best advice for you. And this was 15 years ago. He says, fire all the men. He says, fire all the men. And then he stopped. He goes, okay, guys, I don't want you to go get fired. But you need to start being like women with this because they were really good at working multiple relationships and layers and building consensus within organizations. In your experience, is that something or is it equal footing? Are men and women do it the same or does one gender do it better than the other? I really haven't seen much difference in gender other than the fact that the high-performing women do better than the high-performing men, I think, on average. Why is that? Why, what do you see? So as a woman, they have to be much better than everybody else. And typically in the organizations where I manage the salespeople, very often the top salesperson for the year was a woman. Yeah, They just were better. That was as simple as that. But most of the time I was in the technology field and there are a lot of women salespeople in technology Right, and they're very comfortable with it. So I really didn't see much there. The other question that comes up a lot is, is there a difference between an extrovert and an introvert right. in sales? And I know it may touch on gender as well, because maybe women tend to be more introverted. But the exceptional salesperson is usually an extrovert. But I've seen a lot of very, very successful introverts. So my advice to Great hiring point. sales managers would be not to exclude introverts, because some of them are very, very good. They form relationships better than the extroverts. Because the extroverts are all about me, right? I'm in the room. I want all the attention. Right. So the introverts are quieter, more studious. They're more observant. And a lot of times they're experts on what you're selling. 
their reason why they're there is because they've got the product expertise. They're subject matter experts. Yeah, they're coming in as a, they're a trusted advisor. They've got a consultative process. Now, since sales has evolved or the buying processes have evolved, the selling processes have to be evolving as well. And a lot of companies have legacy or entrenched sales processes. In your book, you talk about sales training theories that are now obsolete and need to be discarded. What would be some examples of those in your mind? There are a lot of them. And the easy ones to pick on would be all these, what I call hokey or trick closes. Right. They don't work anymore. No. I mean, those of us that have been in sales a while learned all these things from always be closing ABC right. to, you know, trial closes all the time to puppy dog every, close, the uh, every yeah, everything was closes. Yeah. Today, well, first of all, remember that we're getting less access to the buyers, right? Right. So if we're always closing the buyer, We'll even get even less access to them because they don't want to hear that. I mean, you don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And most buyers don't want to hear it. So they don't want to be treated like we're normally treated if we're buying a car or buying a house or something. like. People don't want that. I don't want that. When I go out to buy a car, if somebody starts closing me, I turn around and walk out. Yeah. I mean, like, what what will it take for you to buy a car today? Well, it'll take me to, you'll have to chase me in the parking lot because I turned around. Right. So, so that's the easy one, but there are a lot of other things. I know that when you and I went through sales training, we spent a day, maybe two days, maybe three days on objection handling. Yeah. Handling objections. We were taught that if the buyer says this, then you need to say that. And if they say this, then you need to say that. So the goal always was to neutralize their objection. Right. So remove the objection and then we can make the sale. And my theory is objections are really good and they're information and fighting them off, which I call objections jujitsu. By fighting off the objections, all we're doing is taking away information that can be useful to us. And at the same time, we're disparaging the questioner, the person who asked us this, or actually trying to make them feel small or feel less because we want to have power over them and remove this objection. So today, what I tell people is seek objections, right. appreciate the objections. It's good information. It's information. Yeah. This is information. So for let me give you an example. If someone says your price is too high, well, in the past, we would say, oh, no, our price is not too high. You know, you're getting the great value for our product. And we've spent a lot of time developing our prices and, and our prices compared to the competitors. So what I want to say is what I would go back to them is say, well, why do you feel that way? Right. Why do you think the price is too high? Well, the answer in my mind, nine out of 10 times will be that the salesperson didn't do a very good job of demonstrating the value that the buyer would be receiving or differentiating the product. So if they say to you that we think we could go with you or competitor A or B, they're all the same, and we know that we're better than A or B, then it's on us. It's not on them. Yeah. We can't say to them, well, you're a dummy for not seeing this right, and not right. understanding this. But the reality is it's the salesperson who failed on this. And the salesperson then needs to say, okay, this is my response to that is, okay, Miss Prospect, I haven't done a very good job, and here's what I want to do. I want to spend a little bit more time with you to differentiate what we offer versus what others offer. Yeah. And never mention the others by name. No. But just say, this is what we offer, 
And this is why we're maybe a little bit more on the price side. And the other thing is maybe we're including extras in ours that the other competitors are not. Maybe we have some training in there that, that we're not charging for and they are. Or maybe it's not an apples to apples comparison. So it's on me because I failed in differentiating that to you. So I don't want to make them feel bad. I want to make them feel good that they brought it up. And then my next question is, what else is bothering you? All right, keep okay. going. Keep going. Yeah, don't say right. well, well, we want to have delivery by next week. And you said it would be a month from now. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Why do you need delivery by next week? So we want to have conversations. We don't want to try to neutralize it. All these types of sales behaviors, I think, are obsolete. I call them sales malpractice. I think you're bang on. If we don't get objections, we like to bring them up. So I'll actually bring up the most common objections as part of our presentation. So any questions, any comments, any hands don't come up, I'll go, well, here are the common ones we hear from a lot of our clients, and you can let us know if you'd like more explanation on that. We hear this, we hear this. And it really does show, instead of presenting everything in its most favorable light, where we're, hey, we're perfect, we're the best thing since sliced bread. Hey, here's where we've made mistakes. Here's where we learned from it. Here's what we did. So it really is a transparent process. And I think that's what you're saying there, to welcome objections. And in my mind, it's just no doesn't mean no. It just means they need more information to make new decisions. And if we take accountability for it, is what you're saying, we are responsible. We get to change it. Don't blame the customer or the client, the prospect. We need to own that one and then make adjustments to it. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring Active Campaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? Active Campaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. Active Campaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose Active Campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Steve Weinberg. It actually brings up another question around, if we're selling to companies, there's different levels of sophistication within industries. So for instance, and not to disparage them, but if you're selling to construction companies and construction workers, it's a different sell process to if you're selling in, say, in pharma. And I find every business has its own level of complexity for the sales process. So if we sell to enterprise or small medium companies in today's age, using your processes and what you're talking about, we really do need a different sales process for each of those types of stakeholders, don't we? Yes. Well, we need to recognize the differences. And again, it's on the salesperson to research the industry, understand what are the drivers in the industry right now? Right. What really matters to companies in that industry? I remember, again, some of us tend to remember all the horrible things that happen in a sales situation. Right. But I remember observing a salesman one time calling on a manufacturer. And he came out and said, well, if you were a bank, then you'd want to do this. And the guy in the room threw his book and said, I'm not a bank, damn it. And I want answers on how I can do it as a manufacturer. So it's on the salesperson to understand 
the vertical market or the industry that they're in right? and not come in with something that matters to a retailer if they're calling right. on the manufacturer <laughs> or to a bank. They need to understand the level of sophistication. And the buyers, by the way, today on the whole are much more educated, much more sophisticated. Yeah. It's relevant content, I think, is what you're saying. It needs to be relevant and pertinent right. to them. We've created different sales processes, but we used to call up and ask for meetings where we can tell them all about how wonderful our company is and our products and our services. Well, today, I think it's more of, hey, Steve, Michael Vickers with Summit Learning Systems. One of my roles at Summit is to brief executives to some of the two or three trends that we see impacting your business in the next 12 to 24 months. I'm calling to request a 20 minute briefing with you. And when I show up, I'm actually not talking about the company not talking about the products, not talking about our services. I'm actually delivering high value content of something that you don't know. So the game we want to play is I know something you don't, and here's what I'm bringing to the table. They'll ask questions back of you. And now it might be an opportunity to, Hey, we should explore if these are affecting you, we can explore potential remedies. Right. You're bringing value to them by giving them information that they don't have. Right. And a lot of times I would say to them, I've called on your competitors and this is what they're doing to solve this problem Right. without naming the company and not breaking any confidence. But I would say to them, they put in place this new logistics system and this is how it works. It does this, this and this. And that's giving them information that's very valuable to them. You make a couple of really good, interesting points. You know, something that I think is important as well is when they talk about, hey, compared to your competitors or responding to an RFP, for example, or if they can compare you, you haven't done your job well. You know, a strategy which I like to use is if somebody says to me, what about this company here? And I'll say, oh, they're an excellent company. They've got great products, great services. Or why don't I go buy this from Costco? You know, great company, awesome company, great products. My wife and I shop there. We buy as much as we can from Costco. So I'm validating their decision. Right. I said, we don't right. have a problem with Costco whatsoever. What we do have a problem with is their model, their delivery model on what specifically you're looking for. Costco is a big grocery store. They sell you a lot of groceries. No, we just focus on widgets and this is the widget we focus on. We know all things widgets and we stick with this and we have full variety. We fix it. We service it from front end to the back end. So yeah, you might pay $50 more on your acquisition cost, but the total value you receive from the organization is going to be this. And so we attack their model, not the company itself or the delivery model. Another thing, you know, that's changed over the years is that, again, on the sales side, when I meet with salespeople and I say to them, well, who is your competitor? And they would say, well, it's company A, company right. B, company C. And I spend maybe 20 minutes with them talking about the different competitors. Well, why is this one so tough and so forth? And then at the end of the 20 minutes, I would say, well, you know what? None of these people are your toughest competitor. Your competitors do nothing. That's your competitor. You you talk about it in the book, status quo is right. your number one competitor. Status quo, do nothing. Doing nothing. You know, yeah. It's the easiest solution for a company. <laughs> That's uh, right. They don't have to train anybody. They don't have to pay any money. It's what I call the default for a company. So the toughest competitor is to do nothing. So the salesperson has to give them reasons why what they have is better than do nothing not better than company X, Y, or Z. Right. Well, it's that implication, right? What's the implication of nothing versus the implication if you do? If you're losing money, if you're bleeding, what's your cost? Like I say, you cover so many details in a nice, fresh way, by the way, in your book. I'm always reading 
what's out there. And there's some great content out there, but you really, you can tell you've had a career at this and actually doing it and are active in doing it. So the sage advice that you have contained in your chapters, there's a really nice flow to it and it makes sense. So it's got some- Thank you, Michael. You know, thank, thank you. you. I appreciate that. Um, now, according to recent surveys, Steve, surveys show that more than 50% of sales pros regularly fail to achieve their annual sales targets which leads us into the book a little bit. Why is that? So in your book, you talk about competitive sports. We wouldn't tolerate it if they're only winning 50 games. We're going to be firing the coach, trading players. Why do we have such a problem when it comes to hitting our numbers? Yeah, how would you like to go to a surgeon, a heart surgeon, and they tell you, well, 50% of the time they don't make it. Yeah, not good. Is that the the one you want to use? (laughs) Or how would you like to get on an airline? And they say, well, 50% of the time we land safely. But, you know, I did a lot of research on this. and. I found that this goes the 50% failure rate, and it sometimes is 48, sometimes it's 52, 56, well, let's say around 50. That has been historically the norm for probably 40 years. Wow. And companies accept that. So when you speak with presidents, CEOs, VP of sales, you say to them, you know, what percent of your salespeople reach quota? They'll tell you 50% each year. Well, is that okay with you? Well, no, it's what it is. It's like it snows yeah. in Chicago in the winter. I mean, it's just what happens. Hotter and heck in Arizona in the summer. Yeah. To, right. It doesn't <laughs> right. have to be that way. So yeah. you say, well, why is that? And in the book, I go through a number of reasons. If you ask a salesperson why 50% fail, it's very obvious to them. The quotas are too high. So that's why. Now, 50% exceeded it. But if you talk to the 50% that were under it, they would say, oh, my God, we just had this terrible quota. It was just too unrealistic. But the other 50% had no problem with it. But the reality is that it's not the quotas. It's a lot of other reasons. I think in most of the time, it's the salespeople. They didn't do a very good job of selling the solution that they had. They're perhaps the business risks were too high, and they didn't explain to the buyer why they should go ahead with their project or go ahead with buying. I think there's a lot of times they don't reach the executive sponsor or the key decision maker and the project dies. I think that's a lot of it. Perhaps the major one that I have found is that salespeople call on the wrong prospects. Right. So they spend a lot of time with companies that appear to be buyers that are more than willing to meet with them that are very friendly with them. Every time I call Mary or Joe, they'll take the time to talk to me. And they're very engaging, seem very interested, but they're really not buyers. Yep. So they're not what I call, they're not in our sweet spot. So, well, why is it? Well, the salesperson didn't do a very good job of what would be called a hard qualification to make sure not only are they buyers, but are they buyers this year? Are they buyers right now? As a result of spinning all their wheels or time on this, they don't reach their quota because let's say they had a pipeline of maybe 50 companies that they were working and maybe 10 of them are like this. Well, then they've wasted 20% of their time. And that's not an unrealistic number. And if you're wasting 20% of your time, you can't make quota. There's just no way. So a lot of times the difference between the people that make quota and the ones that don't make quota is the ones that that exceed quota are calling on the on the best prospects and they're closing those. And the other ones are calling on weak prospects or ones that are never going to buy and they're spending too much time with them. Too much time. Yeah. So speaking of quotas and sales quotas, we have a number of clients who, for instance, they'll establish a sales quota of a million dollars a year for a sales rep. And the sales rep goes and works their 
butt off. They're just giving everything, leaving it all on the table to get their bonus. And then somebody in the executive goes, all right, let's give you a 20% bump for next year in order to hit bonus. And they've already just worked their tails off and have nothing left in the tank to do it. So they go back to maybe 800,000 in sales. And next year, they don't get their bonus. And all of a sudden, management now brings it down to 800,000 or a million, and then they achieve bonus. So you end up with these peaks and valleys in peak performance versus saying, hey, a million, you had a million, you get a bonus. Now we have a stretch target and an accelerator, anything over a million, anything you do to break what you do, because we already know you're working your tail off to get us that much. There's even more there if you've got something left in the tank and there's an opportunity for them. Have you seen that work in your work? Yes, definitely. And salespeople are very smart. They understand when you give them a sales comp plan, you've actually told them how you want them to act and operate for the year. So you can't give them a comp plan that rewards them for one piece of contact or one way of conduct. I mean, and then expect them to do something else. So if you reward them, for example, to do 20 presentations, they're going to do 20 presentations, that kind of thing. Right. So you have to be careful what you're rewarding them on, what metrics you're using. If you're basing it on sales, a lot of times what will happen is if a salesperson, let's say, has a million-dollar quota, and they're in September and it's a calendar year, and they look at their pipeline and they go, well, I'm at 600 and I'm not going to make it to a million, Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. Salesperson, very smart, right? So I'm going to keep working these deals, but I'm not going to try to close any of them. Till January. So I'm going to skirt into the year. I'll come in with 700, 750. I'll get some grimaces from the sales manager and I'll have to sit there during the sales meeting and watch all these other people get awards. But next year, next year, okay, I'll go into January and start closing these. Mm -hmm. And I'll probably hit my quota by May because I've already pushed these back a little bit. So salespeople will do these things. They'll game the system. They'll game whatever it is. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I used to hand out the sales comp plan, and within 20 minutes, people would come back to me and say, okay, you want me to do this instead of this, right? And I go, no, that's not what I wanted. Well, that's what you're telling me in the comp plan. Right. Okay, so they can read that. Now, most comp plans, sales comp plans, are the results of top-down budgeting. So the... the CEO says, okay, last year we earned whatever it is, $2 a share. This year we got to earn $2.40 a share. So how do we do that? Okay, well, costs are going to go up X percent because salaries are going to go up so much and they figure out all these things. Okay, well, then sales needs to be this. Right. And we'll say last year sales were $100 million, So this year it's got to be $140 million. Well, we have X number of salespeople. So we take that $140 million and divide it by those salespeople. And that's what your quota is, your sales quota. And a lot of times those are very unrealistic numbers. Oh, and there's geographic yeah. issues. There's all kinds of different and issues. Right, exactly. And target and segmenting so issues. Rather, so then rather than developing them from the bottom up and understanding that, for example, a first-year salesperson is not going to close what an eight-year salesperson will close. No. No matter what, okay? It's just not going to happen. Right. There's a learning curve. They don't have a pipeline going in. So your expectation shouldn't be the same. Right. And you'll keep turning over salespeople. I found as a sales manager that whether I met my sales team quota or not, usually depended on whether or not I had a full roster of salespersons for the year. If I had one or two turnovers during the year, there was no way I could make my number because it would take me two or three months to hire someone. And then another two or three months to train that person and to get them running in their territory. 
as opposed to someone that was productive the whole year, and there was just no way I could meet my quota. No. And the cost of a mishire, it can cost you one or two years. Right, exactly. And the cost of a bad hire is really significant as well. Yeah, yeah. A trend we see in sales training and talking about comp programs and training because they go hand in hand is for companies to focus and invest in sales enablement. That's a good start, but it's not enough, is it? No, it's not. I mean, today I've seen some efforts in the area of sales enablement that really make me happy. Companies are spending a lot more time onboarding new salespeople training them, bringing them in and lowering the expectations for them versus the existing sales force, which I think is very good. Right. So they're being a lot more patient. I used to work for someone that I would say had the patience of Attila the Hun. So <laughs> he expected that if I hired someone on Monday, by Thursday, they would close a sale. And if they didn't close one in two weeks, I'd give them the evil eye. Right. So we need to make sure that our expectations are in line with the capabilities to deliver. And if we hire the right salespeople, they'll make it if we coach them well. So higher attitude, train for skills. Right. Part of those skill sets, and you talk about this in the book, is you say that sales pros need to be proactive. What do you mean by that? Well, they should know what's going on with the company. So when a salesperson came to me and said, okay, I received an RFP, Right. And for those listening that don't know what an RFP is, it's a request for proposal. So the first thing I would say to them was, did you know that was coming? And the answer could be yes or no, right? So if they said, yes, I knew it was coming, well, then I knew they were being proactive. They were working with the buyer and perhaps maybe even seeding some of the questions in the right. RFP, okay? In other words, if our headquarters were in Chicago, I would have a question in there and say, is your headquarters in the central time zone? Okay, do that kind of thing. I would put something in there and give it a larger weight. If they came back and said to me, no, I didn't know the RFP was coming. That told me that they really were not proactive and they really didn't know what was going on in the account. If all of a sudden it just appeared out of nowhere, let's say that was an assigned account. And all of a sudden they have an RFP and they didn't know it was coming. Well, my answer to them was somebody else knew this RFP was coming. Right. And you've got to do a really good job of selling me on why you need to complete this and compete for it. You know, when we started our training company, we used to get RFPs all the time and they used to frustrate because you get two out of 10 of them if you were lucky, if you were lucky and to spend a lot of time doing RFPs. And to me, an RFP is a train leaving the station and you don't have a ticket unless you were one of what they call the three C's, right? A competitor that created it, a consultant that built it or a committee that's managing it. So unless you're one of those three stakeholders, it's gone. The train's gone. You're a little on the too late side. So out of frustration one day, I wrote this response to the RFP and I said, thank you for giving us the opportunity to bid. Please take your highest bid and add 10% and let that reflect our bid. And that was it. It took me 30 seconds. And I hit the send button. Well, two hours later, I get a call from a really chapped and ticked off VP. And he goes, what's the meaning of this? Why are you guys so arrogant with this? I didn't expect a call from him. So I said, well, the problem is your RFP. I said, you're coming into the doctor's office and you're telling me the prescription you want us to write for you and you want us to guess. I said, your business is way too important for us to guess. And I said, so if you want a guess solution, we're not your players. And matter of fact, we already know it's more work. So just take your highest one, add 10%. That'll be us if you want us to guess, because we're going to take you through a process first to make sure it's perfect. And he looks at me and he goes, all right, come on in. And we did our meeting. We ended up getting the engagement. And I've actually used that more than one occasion to where I get them to doubt their own RFP. I said, who created it? Was it a committee, a consultant, or a competitor? And usually it's keeping the incumbent honest or keeping somebody else. So you've got to show them, again, playing the same game. I know something you don't. 
here's what it is. So it's about bringing value and information. Yeah, no, I would encourage companies to look at their own track record of responding to RFPs, particularly segregating those that they knew were coming versus those that they didn't know were coming. Right. And they'll see that maybe their win rate of those that they didn't know were coming is abysmal. And a lot of times, the reason why they received the RFP that they didn't know was coming was because there was a requirement from the procurement people right. that at least three people or four people bid on it. Right. And the committee has already decided on company A, but the procurement person said, well, we can't do that. We have to have additional bids from other companies so that we can tell whether That's or not right. company A is, is where we want to go. Right. So really... What I call that is your cannon father. You're just there to fill out a worksheet. And again, that just that takes away all this valuable sales time that we really need. Right. That hurts us from hitting quota. Sure. Well, and you talk about that. You give a couple of good examples and tools. For instance, in being proactive, you talk about value propositions must be strong and quantifiable. Talk about that. Right. Talk about that. Well, part of this is the result of the fact that I'm an accountant, I'm a CPA, and I have a financial background. When I would meet with people and I'd say, okay, are you going to go ahead with this project? And they would say, well, I don't know. Okay, well, what have you determined the return is on your investment? If you buy this from me for $250,000, how much do you think you'll save? Or how much more revenue do you think you'll get? Or will this help you introduce a new product in the marketplace or so forth? And if you got answers that were, I don't know, I don't know, and I don't know, then it was again on the salesperson to develop a business case for the buyer to go ahead. Because without a business case, once it goes up to a decision maker, right, the person who promotes it says, well, I want to go ahead and make this purchase. Well, the decision maker then says, well, what's in it for us? What do we get? What's the return? If I go ahead and do this and not do that, then why would I do that? And I had one case where I was working with this one large telephone company, and they determined that I had a 2,000% return on investment. And then they told me they weren't going to go ahead with the project. And I about lost it. I said, are you kidding me? A 2,000% return? And they said, yeah, because we have other projects that have higher than 2,000% returns. So we need a business case in most cases in order to prove that a company should go ahead with the purchase. Sure. You have a couple of strategies around that. I really like the Trojan horse approach that you talk about, right. or you refer to it as land and expand. Let's talk to our listeners about that. It's a good well, idea. It's it, a great idea. Again, here's the idea behind it. Several times I would propose a solution to a company and let's say it was a million dollars. And they'd say, well, we just can't do that. Well, why? Well, we can't spend that much money or we don't see the return. Okay, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we just take one department in your company and we'll work with this one department and let's say you'll invest $150,000 on that instead of a million. And we'll work with this one department and there'll be a pilot for this. And let's see how that goes. And if that goes well, then I would expect you'll probably roll it out to other departments, right? And they would say, yeah, 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 that's right. Okay, well, why don't we do that? So what I'm doing then is my strategy is to not sell a million dollar deal, which I'm not going to get, right? I mean, that's almost the same as going to the craps table in Las Vegas. I'm just not going to get it. On the other hand, if I can sell this $150,000 pilot and if I can invest the resources on my end to make sure that that's successful, because I'll get together with my team and I'll say, 
you need to do whatever you have to do. We will lose money on this if we have to, right. to make this pilot project successful. Because the upside is once this is successful, we can sell all the other departments in the company at one time. And I probably have done that maybe a dozen times, at least maybe 12, 15 times, expanded it, land and expand from the pilot to selling to the whole company. Right. It's a great strategy. And it's one we've used successfully as well. We always present three possibilities or courses of action. So course of action number one would be at the very least, we need to do this. Let's do a pilot program. Let's do it in this state. Let's do it in this region, Western region, Eastern region, North, South, whatever. Option number two, let's expand it to half the country. And option number three, roll it out nationally. All three are great. It's really based on your priorities. You guys decide. All right. three, and then let them choose. And lots of times they would choose the middle one or the bottom one, or but we don't care because you get them comfortable, you get to learn from them. You talked about the different buyers, but how important is executive sponsorship these days? And then talk about the different types, and we'll kind of start wrapping up on this, about the different types of buyers. For example, you talk about technical buyers who can't approve anything, but can usually impair a sale. User buyers who can't even approve the purchase. There's the economic buyers. Let's talk about the buyers, but how important, start with that executive sponsorship. How important is that nowadays? I think it's really important. And I think, again, one of the failures of low-performing salespeople is that they can't identify the individuals on the buying side and what their roles are in the process. When I ask them who the decision maker is or who the executive sponsor, they either couldn't identify that person or they got the wrong person. And sometimes they had the wrong person because their contact told them that. So they would say, well, who's making the decision on this? And they'd say, well, Norm is going to make the decision on it. Well, it turns out that I would call Norm up and say, Norm, I understand you're the decision maker. And Norm would say, no, I'm not the decision maker. I have input into this. But it's Alice. She's the decision maker. She's got the checkbook. So I use the terminology. I'm very comfortable with the terminology that the Miller-Hyman sales process uses. And they use the term economic buyer for the person who approves the purchase. So the economic buyer has veto power over any decision. So the committee could come in, the economic buyer, and say, we want this company. And the economic buyer says, nope, we're going to do it this company. Not going to happen. And that's right. they're the decision maker. Then we have the user buyers. The user buyers are typically people that are doing most of the legwork throughout the process. They're seeking all the information. They're filling out the RFP. They're asking a lot of the questions. They're mostly available to you and they're very helpful, but they're the ones that can't make the decision. They have input almost always into the decision, but they can't make it. Now, the technical buyers on the other side, these are the people whose job it is to find out why you shouldn't buy that product. So they're actually seeking reasons why they shouldn't go with you. And working with the technical buyers can be really challenging. Right. Because again, what they're trying to do, when I say technical buyers, it doesn't mean they're in IT. What it does mean that these people are making sure that your product fits the need that they have, whether it's the technology, whether it's the environment, whether it's even the price. So these people will try to scrutinize what you have, and they're looking for reasons not to go with you. Right. And working with a technical buyer can often be really challenging because these people come across as being very negative. And this is their job. This is their role. Then we have what I call the coach. Now, the coach can be 
a user buyer. It could be a technical buyer. It could be a decision maker. It could be someone in your organization, in the right. selling organization. But the coach is the one that gets you the information that you need to make the sale. And I can't think of a large sale that I made in 20 years where I didn't have someone on the inside that was giving me really important information, telling me what their priorities were, telling me what they liked or didn't like about my products. Now, the coach is not the decision maker, usually, but the coach is feeding you information. The inside dipster, yeah. Right. So it's important to have a coach. Again, the best ones are inside, but you can also have an outside coach. And I've had people... I actually contacted people that used to work for the company that work there now, but I would talk to somebody. I was trying to sell, let's say, again, company XYZ, and I found out that this person was perhaps maybe the VP of something there, no longer there. I would find that person through LinkedIn, right. contact them and say, can you please help me out? I'm trying to sell company XYZ. I don't understand the politics there. I don't understand why they're not jumping on my solution when it's obvious they have the need. And that person sometimes will give me a very valuable information because again, it's very easy for them to do that. There's no repercussions or no longer there. No. So if they trust you and they know that you're being straight with them, they'll usually be very informative. You make a great, a great point, that insider or that coach. One of my favorite ones, just to that point, is I'll call up salespeople within an organization and I'll ask for a sales call because I always get a call back. And I get a salesman call me back or a salesperson. And I tell them, I say, hey, listen, I'm working on a pitch to your company. I'd like to buy 20 minutes of your time or buy a coffee, a virtual coffee, and I'll send them a Starbucks gift card for 20 bucks. Or, hey, if you give me 15, 20 minutes, I'll send you a couple of copies of my book. So I give a, an appropriate gift for the time. Right. And right. they're salespeople. They understand what this is like. And I said, I wonder if I can ask you some questions and what's the best way to navigate this? And they'll just give you a plethora of information. And usually they're very forthcoming with it. And if there's anyone in my network I can help with, so I'll purposely try and on, on LinkedIn, sign up with salespeople and just as a sales professional or a group. And then I right. use that intro. And I know you do that successfully because you definitely talk about it. Well, the book is called Above Quota Performance. Steve Weinberg is my guest. Awesome book, Steve. It's a culmination of years of of experience and wisdom and insights. And in my mind, it's a must read for anyone who's in the profession of selling. They're building a business. You want to look at how to manage, hire, train, all the elements of it. And it's practical and it's fresh. You think, well, how can we approach this subject in a fresh way? But you certainly do a good job of it. Everything from proposals, handling it to avoiding competing on price, make your sales presentations more memorable, the best questions we should ask and effective lead generation, all issues, plus much more on making your sales career work for you and helping you break your revenue targets. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me today. I really appreciate it. No worries. What's the best website we can go find you on, Steve? The best place to find me is at www.steveweinbergsales. That's one word, S-T-E-V-E-W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, sales.com. That's my website. They can find the book. They can find your programs. And of course, anywhere where you buy your favorite books. And I know they can also hire your brain if they want some help and would obviously recommend that they do that. So Steve, thanks again for being our guest. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My production team is Beth Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting.